from Washington. This is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first edition of uh, Macrocast Live. It's the first time we've tried to do the Macrocast uh, Live. Uh, Usually we uh, tape it on Fridays and you can see it on Friday. We'll be back on Friday as always, uh, but we're really excited about this uh, first effort of a live uh, a live event. Uh, I'm Tony Fratto, founding partner of Hamilton Place Strategies. Uh, I have my two co-hosts from the Macrocast, John Fagan and Brendan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners, and three really terrific guests with us uh, today to kick off this uh, the first in this series. Uh, just a wonderful panel of uh, of people who. I have just enormous respect for their views on what the macroeconomy, uh, what's going on with the macroeconomy, what's happening with economic policymaking, what the Fed is doing, uh, and how these are all impacting the lives of people in the United States and elsewhere. Um, I want to introduce Victoria Guida. She's currently an economics reporter covering uh, both the Fed and Treasury Department, the broader economy uh, for Politico, just an all-star uh, reporter. Uh, she spent her entire career in Washington writing about uh, banking regulations and monetary policy, trade negotiations. Uh, you can you should definitely look for her on uh, on Twitter. Jim Pethokoukas is the DeWitt Wallace Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I feel like I've been reading uh, Jim for, I don't know, 25 years on uh, on his writing and commentary on uh, on economics and economic policy. He writes and edits the AE Ideas blog. Uh, and hosts a weekly podcast uh, called The Political Economy with James Pethokoukas. He also has a Substack, um, a subscriber to the Substack, the Please. Is it Faster Please or Please Faster, Jim? Faster Please, exclamation point. Faster Please, with the exclamation point, but very polite uh, request to go faster. Yes, I think so, always. (laughs) Classic. And then Nathan, yeah, Nathan Sheets. Uh, Nathan is the global chief uh, economist at uh, at City, where he oversees the global economics team and leads research across all areas of economics. Uh, uh, Nathan was previously the undersecretary for uh, international affairs at the U.S. Treasury Department during the Obama administration. Uh, I was the guy who followed around a previous undersecretary for international affairs uh, at the at the Treasury Department and, and traveled the world. So I have a pretty good feel for uh, for for Nathan's job. But Nathan's just one of those really uh, you know most respected voices in uh, economics, uh, not just for with his time at uh, at City and previously at City and Treasury, but longtime career at the Fed as well. And I'm just really excited. We're all very excited to have uh, this group together on a uh, on a pretty important week with the FOMC meeting, economic data out, uh, and uh, and lots of events impacting. Uh, inflation and uh, and the workings of the economy this week. So I'm going to turn it over to John and Brendan, uh, and they'll take a run through of the kinds of things that we'll be talking about today, and then we'll get into questions. And I should tell the audience that uh, we will be taking questions from the audience later. Uh, if you have questions, you can go into the chat box and, uh, and, and put questions up, and we'll try to get through them after our initial uh, uh, discussion. Thanks very much, Tony. And uh, when we look out at the macro landscape, 
it is about as challenging uh, as, as we've seen in our careers. And these are careers that have spanned the global financial crisis and a variety of other disruptions of the global economy and, and financial system. It's uh, when we think about what has transpired since the last time the Fed hiked rates in December, way back in December of 2018, which seems like an eon ago. What has happened since then, 2019, U.S.-China trade fight, which is calcified into really you know, great power competition. 2020, obviously the onset of the pandemic and U.S. political turmoil. 2021, the you know hopes around uh, the the vaccines, but the breakdown of global supply chains, the uh, the swelling up of inflationary pressures, uh, and here in 2020, geostrategic disaster of a magnitude that we hoped had been relegated to the history books, but is here in reality in front of us. All of these compounding uh, and pro-cyclical kinds of risks building on, a, on, on, the, on the previous. It, uh, and, and here we are again with the Fed back into its, its rates, uh, rate hike cycle. So I want to start out with, uh, with a question to Nathan. When you assess, when you look back at recent years, how do you assess the Fed's performance that has brought it to this point? And how do you think they can strike a balance in this difficult environment this week? Well, uh, John, it's wonderful to be here, and and what a what an excellent question. Uh, I think it it is the right uh, intellectual predicate for the discussion of where we are at the moment. Uh, I would say that the Fed spent several years developing a framework, thinking hard about the challenges that they had faced over the previous decade. And, and their framework was well-suited to address the environment that they were thinking of as they uh, 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 articulated the challenges. The problem is that the world has come and thrown the Fed, I would say, one curveball. But now I think we could even say it's thrown it two curveballs, which is trying to hit with one lousy bat. Uh, and I think that is, that is the challenge. The first uh, curveball was inflation, that the vast majority of the economics profession uh, judged, Larry Summers being the exception, uh, as likely to be transitory last year, clearly had more uh, underlying momentum than what we would have expected and left the Fed already in a tough circumstance. And then what we've done with Russia, Ukraine is layered down on top of it a, a, a first order supply shock that is pulling the Fed in, 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 in opposite directions. So uh, I would say the Fed was well positioned for the world that had prevailed uh, 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 pre-pandemic. Uh, but the world at the moment is very, very different. And I think if then if there is a debate, it is, did the Fed's framework, was it too focused on, quote unquote, the last set of issues in the last environment? And did it have built into it the robustness that it actually provides a meaningful guide if the world shifts significantly? And I fear that the answer to that is no. I don't know what I take from the pen, uh, from the framework that helped me through last year as we were recovering from the pandemic, or now as I'm dealing with this supply shock for for uh, from Russia, Ukraine. 
Nathan, I mean, maybe I mean it's baseball season again now. We're able to talk about baseball. So I mean, it's, it, it seems like it's more than just curveballs. It's like uh, Gaylord Perry out there, right? We've got spitballs and knuckleballs, and because uh, you know another one is I, I did you know I don't know that we felt that we would be in this week. Also, actually, you know, when we planned this months ago. We thought we would just be talking about inflation, the shift from uh, you know goods to services, the Fed on the doorstep of its first rise. Is it going to be 25 points or 50 basis points? We didn't have Russia, Ukraine on our radar screen. We also didn't have um, you know COVID in in Asia, you know China and Hong Kong in, in particular on our radar screen either, which is another supply shock uh, uh, that we're that we're facing this week. And so, you know, I think John said that, you know, the job of the Fed is, you know, pretty, pretty challenging. I think it's challenging in normal times. It's even more so today. And so I mean, only one of us here gets a chance to actually ask Jay Powell uh, the question. Victoria, what, how would you put this question to him? What would you ask Jay? Oh, well, um, well, you don't have to pre- the question. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to give the Fed too much question. warning yeah. as to what I'm going to ask him. Um, yeah. although, you know, as you can tell from that very thick briefing book that he has, they're pretty good at, at, uh, guessing the gist of a lot of the things that we're going to ask. But, um, yeah, no, usually I, I have a list and, and, and actually, you know, all, all of the things that you were just talking about is a perfect reason why, uh, you know, you don't necessarily settle on a question until right beforehand because things just keep changing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do think that the, the framework is, is a really, um, you know, we're at a fascinating point for that new framework because, you know, when the Fed put the new framework in place, basically what they envisioned is they envisioned inflation finally picking up because of reaching maximum employment, right? Like, one of the things that's so strange about this inflationary moment is, uh, you know, it was, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't claim to know specifically all the things that are going into driving inflation, but I mean, I think that the, the obvious culprits are things like congressional spending and um, supply chain shocks and things like that, um, that are sort of not necessarily directly tied to this, you know, Phillips curve <clears throat> relationship that I think the Fed was envisioning when they put in their new framework. And so one of the things that, um, you know, I've, I've asked Powell about before is, uh, you know, I think, I think it was the last press conference and I asked him if we'd reached maximum employment. And he said, basically, yes, but it was sort of like interim maximum employment where it's like, you know, <laughs> we're at the point where the, the job market is tight enough. There, there are, uh, you know, so few jobs available, um, or I'm sorry, so few workers available for the jobs that are open that it's, it's leading to accelerating inflation, but that doesn't mean that down the line, more labor supply won't come on. And we're starting to see that. I mean, like people are coming back into the workforce and, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, we were talking about, Nathan was also talking about how the Ukraine crisis is sort of pulling the fed in two directions, because on the one hand, you know, inflation speeding up would, you would think would want, make you want to raise rates. But on the other hand, slowing growth would make you want to maybe be a little more hesitant. Uh, one of the other things that I feel like people don't necessarily talk about that much is the Fed was already sort of in that place for a while with labor supply. Because on the one hand, with inflation speeding up, you want to raise rates. But if there are people on the sidelines of the workforce, and that's part of what's driving inflation is there aren't enough workers you know, maybe you don't want to be too aggressive in raising rates. So, I mean, this this whole situation, back to the sort of curveball analogy, is 
is uh, it's been really difficult for them to navigate. And I think that, um, you know, totally agree that I don't think the framework was really, really designed for this moment. And Jim, a lot of the critics are talking about how far the, the, the more vociferous critics of the Fed are talking about how far behind the curve they are. Is that uh, is that something you think is a is a useful uh, a useful way to frame this uh, this policy conundrum that they're in behind the curve um, and uh, and and if if that's if that's the case you know how should they be responding? Well, uh, no, yeah, I mean, I think I think they are on the curve, and I think uh, I think more helpful than trying to determine exactly. And I'm not sure I can determine exactly how far behind the curve, though. I think if you look at negative interest rates, uh, real interest rates pretty far behind. But I guess my point is that we, we seem to be in this new era where the Fed is going to look at a lot of other things, supposedly, when determining monetary policy. I think uh, Victoria alluded a little bit uh, to that. But I think we're, we're going to be in kind of an empire strikes back mode, where we're going to go back to the old ways. And the Fed is going to end up doing whatever it takes not to have a repeat of a stagflationary period where inflation expectations end up being unanchored. Uh, certainly the short run expectations don't look good. The long run expectations seem to look better. Uh, but we're looking at what, another year of maybe, you know, where we could, we could have double digit inflation, certainly maybe high single digit inflation something we haven't experienced in a long time. And actually, you know, there was a, you know, a long New York Times article that just came out uh, talking a lot about Paul Volcker. That's a name we might want to start thinking about uh, again, because we've like, what, I mean, we, this is obviously the diciest situation since the global financial crisis. But during the global financial crisis, we had to go back a long time to a period that bad. We saw the housing markets as sort of eviscerated. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go back quite as far. We can go back to the 1970s. And that, those lessons are fresh enough, I think, especially in the mind of Jay Powell, that, that he kind of knows what the Fed could have to do. Uh, there's been a lot of stories about, like, are we going to enter a stagflationary period? We're going to have high inflation and, and slowing growth. And we might, but I don't think that, but they're not going to have, an, the Fed will not allow, I think, an extended period of stagflation. Uh, we are not going to repeat the 70s. And if it means driving the economy into a recession, uh, I think they're going to do it. So uh, they, they have that one that they have that one stick, that baseball bat. I don't think they're going to be afraid to use it. I'm gonna say, if we're going to go back to 1979, though, can can the Pirates and Steelers be champions? Again? <laughs> I, <know> if we're <laughs> gonna go. I was the rare Baltimore Orioles uh, fan. In Sorry about that. But look, I, I have been saying, though, I mean, look, if we're talking about inflate, uh, talking about uh, recession um, and, uh, in which like I don't know that anybody's predicting recession. Right. If we're talking about low growth and uh, an inflation and interest rates rising. Interest rates are never I don't think they're ever going to get to what we saw back in, in that in that time period. That's not in the offing. But is it is a recession really uh should we be talking about recession right now? Because I, I still can't help feeling that, um, you know, there's still just enormous demand out there and we have, uh, un, you know, unemployment down, you know, under, you know, in, in the threes. Um, it's hard to see recession in that situation, isn't it? But, the, but there's no question that people, I will tell you, we do our own economic sentiment uh, analysis. People are as unhappy as they have ever been, including uh, back during that period, 
but there are still pretty good uh, fundamentals in, uh, underlying the economy, right, Nathan? Uh, I think I think the answer is is yes. I think the households are are, are strong, and I think that the United States we are kind of separated from the channels of transmission, at least one degree, especially relative to Europe, which is deeply integrated in, uh, uh, with Russia, particularly in its energy uh, market. And uh, I think as that situation in Russia, Ukraine persists, that the first round effects on growth and spending will predominantly uh, be felt uh, in Europe. But if the situation in Europe becomes sufficiently severe, I think then it moves into global financial markets. The slowing in in Europe could hit the United States and start to impact markets and sentiment uh, uh, here. So when I think about the second round effects, that's where uh, the U.S., I think there's more risk uh, of the U.S. being swept in, but it is less acute than 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 elsewhere. Uh, the other point that I would make that's uh, important parameter in thinking about recession probability is clearly the probability that we face recession is increasing in the persistence of the conflict uh, in Russia, Ukraine and the various disruptions to material supply and so forth associated with that. So if this, uh, if this conflict were to persist, say, you know, toward the end of the year, then I'd be looking at much higher probability of recession for the U.S. and for the global economy than if it's concluded with the negotiation in the next couple of months. John, you saw, um, we got data this morning, John and Brendan, um, was there anything in that in the in you know PPI that uh, that gave a different signal from from what you were expecting? <laughs> Not really. Still fairly elevated. Yeah. Actually, I think the most interesting data points from today came from uh, overnight from China, which had quite strong um, investment numbers, retail sales, um, and, and but the markets did not focus on that. Uh, we're having one of the largest tech sell-offs in, in China uh, since really 2008. Uh, it's kind of around fears of that they'll be get caught up in the sanctions. China's locking down again as the Omicron uh, surge hits them. And, you know, there's fears that that, that growth will, will be massively affected. So I think, Nathan, maybe going back to you, you know, we, we haven't talked about China at all yet. It seems like that poses a, a lot of uh, risks to global growth. It uh, it 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 does. Uh, you know, I think the signal that I'm taking from Chinese policymakers is uh, President Xi really wants stability uh, for the year ahead as he moves into the, the party Congress. Uh, and uh, their uh, growth target of five and a half percent, which they articulated knowing uh, that the IMF forecast was 4.8 Right. They were aware of what the ground looked like. I take that as implicitly them saying we will uh, be uh, stimulative if necessary to ensure that we remain stable. And that's kind of the context. I'm a little puzzled by the strength of some of these data is they were much stronger than what people would expect. Yeah, like almost double what people are expecting. Yeah. I mean, it was just really an outside surprise. But uh, if I have to put a 
uh, a narrative around it, it's they're starting to stimulate. And, uh, uh, you know, I think on balance, that's good for global growth. But as you say, lots of risks around that with uh, their one, uh, their uh, 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 zero COVID strategy and the lockdowns, what that might mean for activity, or alternatively, how much stimulus it might take to get to that five and a half percent. And now this very intense a turmoil that we've seen in Chinese financial markets. So many different cross currents at the moment. But at the end of the day, I think if President Xi wants stability, he's got the tools to get it, at least for now. And uh, Victoria, I wanted to cycle back on something that uh, the angle that Jim was talking about, really about the inflation expectations. And, uh, and this really gets to the heart of the, of the, the heart of the conundrum that the Fed is facing. Uh, they have characterized inflation in kind of a monolithic fashion. They haven't really uh, parsed it out into supply shock versus organic. It's, I mean, they've alluded to that, but it hasn't really been a driving force of their, uh, you know, of their policymaking at this point. How is, uh, you know, when you look at, when you look at the situation in Ukraine, it's not just energy, it's, it's food prices, it's uh, metals prices, it's across the board in, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a really big challenge. And, uh, and that's, how would you how would you frame that question for uh, for Chair Powell in uh, in how the Fed can try to, you know, try to differentiate between these things? I mean, we've seen the Fed in the past say appeal to the Congress and say, hey, fiscal policy is better for something like this. Is there an avenue for the Fed to say, you know, to other branches or to the White House or message to other policymakers? Hey, you know, if we're in a big supply shock there, monetary policy isn't necessarily the the way to solve these things. There are other ways that, uh, that you know, policymakers can address them. Yeah, because Victoria, you made a really good point earlier that some Fed policy tightening will exacerbate some of the issues that we're facing now. Right. You know, higher rates isn't going to help us build more cars and or build houses either. You know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that I think that that's exactly right in terms of the dilemma that the Fed finds itself in. I mean, one of the things that I think has been kind of interesting about the whole inflation expectations question, which is sort of this vague, you know, notion that all of us psychologically can, can <laughs> contribute to inflation. And, uh, you know, I hear sort of differing opinions as to how much that's a that's a real driver of inflation. Um, but that seems to be one of the things that the Fed is worried about the most. And, you know, when you when you think it think about um, before the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, it seems like the way that the Fed was thinking about it, you know, they stopped using the word transitory, but they still seem to think that the basic story is true, that once the supply chain issues start to resolve themselves and once, you know, congressional aid really starts to fade, then a lot of the inflation will come back down on its own. And the Fed's job is sort of to just not also be stimulating the economy, right? Getting to a point where they're just sort of like, sitting on the sidelines, neither, you know, neither boosting the economy nor restricting the economy. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that, you know, one of the questions for them is basically, you know, is, the re- is one of the reasons why you're getting so concerned, particularly when you think about what you all were talking about, which is, you know, Russia and Ukraine driving higher energy prices, higher food prices. It just adds to this feeling that, inflation is just going to be here for a long time, even if even if the Fed has been right this whole time and that inflation will start to fade. 
um, once the supply chain issues do. Um, you know, if if we all get into this mindset, then the Fed might just have to use its tools to basically signal, hey, everybody, no, stop thinking about that inflation's going to keep happening. We're going to stop you. But yeah, no, I, I think I think that um, you know, Brendan, the way that you said it is exactly right, which is just like, how much can it really help, right? When they when they raise rates, and I mean, you know, you you hear people like Jason Furman say, well, ultimately, inflation is sort of a, a demand side issue because you know if we didn't have these supply chain issues, then inflation would potentially show up somewhere else, right? It's just it's because of the pandemic that we're all buying goods instead of spending money on services, but you might have more services inflation if that weren't the case, things like that. Um, so I think the question is exactly that, which is like, how much do they think now inflation is driven by demand? How much of it is driven by these continued supply chain issues? And how much of this is sort of this amorphous, well, it doesn't really matter because the longer we have this inflation, the more people get used to inflation and that's dangerous. I'll go with the latter. Uh, on that. <laughs> if you remember when prices really started to pick up, you know, there was, and, and, and not just on uh, econ, tw- econ and finance Twitter, there was a lot of dismissal saying, hey, these are a bunch of one-offs. This isn't broad-based. Uh, it's, you know, maybe some chips here or cars there. This isn't the kind of broad-based inflation. But isn't that exactly how something like this would start? Is that it's one thing then it's the other, and it's this month and next month. And then suddenly expectations begin to change. And so we can sit here and try to like, you know, figure out how much is how much is supply chains, how much is still all the stimulus pumped into the system, how much is going to be metals or or oil. And while I understand that's important for, for the Fed figuring out what actions it wants to take, as far as as far as changing our expectations. And another way of saying that is how much do we fear inflation? I'm not sure all that matters a lot because if people begin to see all these prices and obviously it has broadened out, the causes for our sort of consumer and business expectations isn't going to matter a lot if it's if it ends up being month after month and after month. And I think as far as what you know the administration can do on that uh, a supply side, uh, I'm not sure I would have taken a lot of comfort from that State of the Union speech because uh, what I got was uh, we're we're going to tackle inflation by making our very efficient global supply chains less efficient. And, by, and don't forget, we also are going to nominate uh, three doves to the uh, to the to the Fed. So uh, how's that do for your inflation expectations? So I I, I guess I agree with Jason Furman uh, very much that I uh, that this is that this is a problem. Uh, it's an expectations problem and, uh, and ultimately monetary policy, uh, is going to have to be the main thing that deals with it. Jim, just to, just to follow up on your, uh, on your assessment of the supply chain issue, obviously, and one of the big problems is we're, we can't go back to the status quo ante it, uh, you know, ex ante, the world is just different. We, uh, we're trying to diversify our supply chains away from China. We obviously have to diversify them rapidly away from Russia, what is what are some what are some uh, policies that might be you know not a magic bullet but be constructive? What are what are some of the things that you're thinking about that the administration should be doing or future administrations should be doing uh, to to basically reroute and uh, and re you know solidify these supply chains 
uh, from a national security perspective, uh, but also just from a functionality perspective? Uh, I guess what am I? Uh, I am very skeptical uh, of the ability of Washington to reroute supply chains. Uh, certainly not as some as some more populous people would do, and they would like all the iPhones made in, uh, I don't know, uh, Fremont, California or something. Isn't that where they made the first uh, Macs? I don't think that's going to happen. I think a very simple thing, if we're worried about critical supplies, critical medical ingredients, uh, preparing for the next pandemic, um, I think my my first impulse, rather than uh, try to figure out how to uh, uh, reorder the global supply chain, is maybe try to stockpile a few things in advance. That seems like a, that that would be my I would go for the minimal thing first and I would start stockpiling, which clearly we did not do. It seems like a very simple first uh, first order solution. Yeah, I agree. With that. I, I have to say it's never been obvious to me why, um, you know, making, uh, you know, American firms marginally less efficient relative to their global competitors, uh, you know, would because of some event that might happen 15 years from now is uh, would be a successful strategy. So I still think that we are, we are still going to be relying maybe on smarter supply chains also, but not, we're not going to eliminate global. We're not eliminating globalization. We're not going to get away from global supply chains. We may just try to rationalize them to account for these kinds of things that may happen in the future, uh, you know, and, and look for those places where there are single sources of certain things, but we're not going to eliminate globalization. Uh, it's, if, we, if we made GE do that, nothing would make Siemens happier, right? Is if we hobbled, you know, the American company with, uh, you know, inefficient supply chains. Um, uh, Nathan, one of the, you know, like there's that saying that, you know, nothing cures uh, high prices like high prices, right? Like, so you'd expect to see people to, you know, as prices rise to do less of the things that cost a lot and start substituting or doing other things. I don't see a whole lot of evidence that we're doing that that's had the effect yet, right? I mean, um, you know, uh, we saw airlines, predicting, um, you know, pretty good quarters ahead. Uh, you know, more people are flying. Uh, Disney reported last month record turnout at their resorts. So people are, are, are they're being pretty good economic actors right now. They don't seem to be, this, a lot of this is kind of anecdotal, only a little bit of data. They seem to be, you know, pretty good economic actors right now. I, I broadly agree with, uh, with that. And I think the underlying driver is uh, consumers are well positioned. They've entered this uh, episode with strong balance sheets. Now, the balance sheets are getting hit a bit as a result of, of equity market pressures. But until recently, balance sheets were, were, were very strong. The labor market was very strong. And while maybe there was a little bit of give back on the real wage, we were seeing some meaningful increases in nominal wages catching up uh, to to the inflation. And importantly, there were lots of jobs available. So households knew that if they wanted to go to work, they could uh, have those opportunities. And so I think it put the, the households in a position where they felt comfortable spending and their uh, financial means were rising at a comfortable rate, and they were well positioned to be able to absorb the rising inflation. And I'm speaking here in aggregate, right? If we look across households at different spots in the income distribution, you know, uh, will we see parts of the distribution 
lower paid workers who may be hit harder or certain households have been adversely affected. Absolutely. But in aggregate, there's been a lot of momentum uh, uh, with the households. They've been able to absorb it and 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 continue to spend one place where this has been particularly notable is in the uh, auto sector where car prices have moved up and we're hearing from automakers that you know they had for many years kind of an expectation of what the 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 wallet share of a new car might be for somebody who was going into the showroom and they've raised that and it seems that the consumers are uh, you know, to date, happy to accommodate it. Now, a corollary to this point that I think is also critical in thinking about the economy, inflation, and the behavior of markets is not only have the households been in a relatively strong position, the corporates, as they've absorbed these price shocks, have had more pricing power in being able to pass them through uh, into prices uh, than in the past. And this has been a key factor that's that's continued to support uh, corporate earnings. So all the way around, it feels like that in some sense, the inflation is has been accommodated, at least so far. And, you know, with some of these soaring uh, uh, energy prices, does that start finally having an effect? I would think the answer is yes. But pre, you know, through the end of February, the machine had a lot of momentum. Um, is there? I, I mean, do we have a sense on that? On the, I mean, like, to me, the household—that's a you know the, the household balance sheet question—is you know one of those great questions, right? Because we, we we you know we did we did fill their their balance sheets pretty well, and that's can you know been you know, Larry and others might say that's you know that's a that's a cause of this, um, but they are healthy balance sheets. They are able to access them. Credit availability is you know, very, is very high. Why would we think that that would, I mean, you know, what's the run rate on that, right? I mean, at least on, you know, on their, you know, on their balance sheets and, um, and with wage increases coming also, you know, whether they're not quite, or at least keeping pace uh, with inflation and demographically, it's, um, um, you know, we can look at that also. It's actually the lower quintiles are seeing the most significant, uh, wage increases, so they're putting them in a little bit more position, a better position to, um, uh, you know, to go to meet their needs. Uh, do, I mean, do you is, do you worry about that? Run is, is there? Should we worry about it running out? So, uh, I, I, you know, I would I would frame your question is what brings this process that I described to a halt or reverses it? And I really think that the, that the key that I'm watching is the strength of the labor market. If we start seeing firms uh, less willing to hire, pulling back, maybe laying some workers off as a result of either tighter monetary policy or geopolitical uncertainties, maybe they can't get inputs, uh, supply chain disruptions, and they have to lay people off. We're already in Europe hearing stories about some factory closures in sectors. Yeah, I think that 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 would be the pain point in this story. Uh, the adjustment in the in the equity market is something that I'm watching and thinking about those balance sheets and wealth effects. But I, 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 I think that we were starting from a place where things were so elevated that this unwinding we've seen, I think most people would kind of look at it and say, well, I'm kind of back to where I was last year. 
maybe even look at it as a normalization. So I think the key to this story is continued momentum in the labor market and its, and its resilience. The, the pressure on the lower income echelons in the U.S. economy is obviously part of the uh, narrative that's trying to reanimate, not build back better, that's gone, but whatever its successor is, build, build I can't remember what, they, uh, what they've even uh, rebranded it as if, to the extent that they have. Uh, and obviously the argument is higher gasoline prices are harder to bear if you are a low income person than if you have a job in which you're driving a lot, which tends to be working class jobs and so forth. Victoria, when is is there a is there any real we've heard a lot of different things from Senator Manchin from where you sit? Is there any real momentum, uh, do you think, to get some remnants of build back better, uh, perhaps under the, you know, the the, the view that there's still need for stimulus at certain parts of the, you know, U.S. U.S. economic uh, lower income uh, strata. Yeah, so I think I think remnants is definitely the the word there. It's definitely not going to be this whole package. You know, the 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 bill that passed the House was like one point seven trillion dollars, and we're definitely not going to see anything like that. Um, I I do think there is potential room for something to pass. I mean, especially when you consider the fact that Democrats have a really high likelihood of losing at least one of the chambers of Congress in the midterms, just because those numbers are so tight. Um, that it's so easy for it to go either way that I think that, you know, there, there will at least be some thought to, OK, well, what do we definitely want to get done? But, uh, you know, there's a reason why it hasn't happened yet. And it's getting everyone on the same page is very difficult. And one of the things that's kind of interesting now is, you know, Manchin was talking about inflation even before it was really the like extreme panic issue that it is now. Um, and now that now that inflation is is really here and it seems to have some some real staying power, um, I think that the, the the focus around what a package might look like has shifted. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting is, you know, tax reform is, is supposed to be part of this. So, uh, you know, potentially raising more revenue through taxes um, because Manchin is less interested in doing deficit spending. And in fact, one of the things that he's talked about is um, doing deficit reduction. So, so like in addition to paying for programs, he's also talked about doing deficit product- reduction, which is, uh, you know, f- f- for me so fascinating because in Washington, it's like hard enough to find money to pay for stuff that like finding money and then not just like using it to reduce the deficit as opposed to funding new programs. is just fascinating to me that the Democrats as like that they would be the party that would be doing that is just so intriguing, but it really speaks to the moment that we're in, which is that, you know, because we have this inflation um, there is more of a, of a, of a, you know, political argument where you could actually see the Democrats doing that. So I think that uh, just to kind of tie this all together, Manchin has definitely suggested that he's open to, you know, some some social spending, some climate spending, but he also wants, uh, you know, inflation fighting, deficit reducing measures in there. And so, um, you know, I guess if we do ultimately get something, it'll look pretty different from what Democrats were originally envisioning. And, and of course, that all depends on because there's also like, you know, Kirsten Cinema has very strong opinions about what types of taxes that she right. would be on board with. She's Obviously, the left might, you know, be frustrated at the whole deficit reduction thing. So, again, 
huge question mark as to whether or not that's possible, but it's still still kicking around out there. I'm so glad I didn't throw out my Simpson Bowles files. I've come <laughs> over so many years. To just res- but no, I, I, my, my pack rat uh, <laughs> is going to come into play. You have Darren Walker on here, uh, maybe next, maybe on the next uh, live. I mean, whenever, whenever we're in deficit cutting mode, uh, you, can, you can get him back out. Look, I, I, I'm not optimistic. I, you know, I, 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 have a, I have a hard time seeing how they're going to get anything done. I just don't see, um, I don't see the votes for it. And I also feel like just the, the, the dynamics in the Democratic caucus right now are, um, they still see, you know, this as like, you know, there's the arc. And you can't leave any any of the creatures off the ark, you know. So if your creatures get on the ark, my creatures are getting on the ark. And so uh, the only thing they can, you know, try to do is play around with the kind of timing gimmicks that, you know, that pissed off Mansion last time. I just think it's just really, really hard for them to try to uh, to try to get to agreement there. Um, and uh, and so I, I'm I, I'm not optimistic that they'll get be able to get anything through. No, they did just get a, you know, pretty massive, which remember pretty massive omnibus bill that just, um, uh, that they just, the president just signed and they passed. And so it's not like there isn't still significant fiscal support out there. And still not like there isn't still massive, uh, uh, monetary support out there. I wonder, I wonder just real fast. I wonder if, and the president mentioned it during the state of the union. Uh, I think if you're trying to look for something and I'm not sure if some of these, you know, uh, chunked off parts of uh, uh, Build Back Better or Building in America Back Better building uh, end up getting pushed into it. But this, what now the president has called the Bipartisan Innovation Act, which is a use has, has been called the Competes Act, the Endless Frontiers Act, I think a couple other things. And if that is something I think which there is some bipartisan interest in because there's, yeah. it's, it's to respond to China. So that's a good way of motivating people to vote for things. So if I was going to say like something might happen, maybe we see a couple of bits, maybe childcare housing combined with, you know, the chip stuff and some of this research spending. I mean, I think anything's going to be hard, but I think framing it as competing against China and have, keeping the U.S. on the technological frontier in these uncertain times. I mean, there might be some. You yeah, know, that I can see that I can see. Although I'm not sure the Republicans are in the mood to give wins. Uh, right I think now. that's that's the problem right yeah hey uh, we have a we have a couple we have a couple questions that that came in um that I'd like to like to put out there i mean one from one from our friend nathan from our friend uh mark sobel um and it's i'm gonna i'm gonna sort of read it as a two parter one is just that like this the, this dynamics for the fed on on rolling off you know q t and and rate increases and what do you what do you see coming forward but and the second part of that question uh, is to you know, for you to put your undersecretary for international affairs hat back on again, um, which is how a, a rate rising, uh, you know, rate rising here and in Europe is going to impact emerging markets uh, right now. We haven't talked about that, but it's I think it's a, pr- a pretty important question. On the uh, on the QT uh, question. Uh, I think it is the case that a a runoff of balance sheet creates uh, uh, um, an environment that is less accommodative and is probably equivalent to some amount of tightening of the the Fed funds rate. 
So I, I, I do believe that that is a separate tool or modality uh, through which the Fed can tighten financial conditions. But the problem with it is we have very little experience and we just don't know how to calibrate it. You know, is a trillion in, uh, in balance sheet, you know, like 10 basis points, 25 basis points, 50 basis points. The estimates are just all over the map. We just don't know. And I think that pushes the Fed to say, we want to put that into the, back, into the background. We just want it to be kind of like mood music at the restaurant. It's there. It's happening. We're aware of it. But we're not really focused on it. And 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 then to the extent that policy needs to be tighter or looser than would be the case. Otherwise, you move the Fed funds rate a little more, or a little less. Uh, so I don't think they want it to be an active tool just because they don't know how to use it. Uh, the second part about the implications of all this uh, tightening for emerging markets, uh, I think, is 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 absolutely a real concern and has important implications for the performance of the global economy. Uh, And uh, I think it will create challenges for uh, countries. I would say particularly some in Latin America that will feel the effects of Fed tightening and may need to have a tighter policy than they would have otherwise. And this is having the context occurring in the context of them already dealing with some meaningful domestic challenges. So I think that that is a channel of transmission, is a channel of transmission that the Fed will be aware of, especially as it's thinking about the implications for global growth and financial stability. But given that the size of the domestic challenge with inflation it can't be sufficient to forestall uh, a hiking of rates. It's just another factor on their dashboard that they'll have to pay attention to. Yeah, and look out for it. Maybe that's a that's a signal for the international financial institutions, so IMF in particular, in that case, right, yeah. to be to uh, to, to step in. Um, uh, another question uh, that we got, which I think, I think is a, it is a really important question, and it's um, in, in some ways it's. You know, this is like a. Uh, this is from Sarah Wartel, uh, uh, president of the Urban Institute, um, asks about housing and how, and how uh, and how much housing is having an impact on uh, on inflation, which is you know pretty significant price increases uh, uh, for housing. It doesn't seem like there are there's enough investment in uh in new housing to meet both you know just just demand uh, and credit is available and there's just normal demand but then you also have this switch of people trading places um you know going you know f- looking for homes in suburbs which we saw in 2020 2021 uh i'm i sit here in new york city uh where rents are um you know took a took a hit i would i had perfect timing and being able to renegotiate my rent lower during the, the depths of COVID. Uh, and now uh, rents have fully recovered and are, and are, you know, uh, still, you know, back to being very high in, in New York city. Um, so how, how should we think about housing right now? And, and uh, you know, whether that's going to level off or, or how it could, is that a, uh, is that a, am I throwing another Nathan question or is that a, are we going to make this an open question? We'll let Nathan go first. <laughs> Uh, certainly the housing market's been red hot. Maybe 
maybe we're starting to see recently a little bit of cooling and maybe a little bit of the kind of demand destruction sorts of effects that you described uh, earlier, Tony. Uh, maybe a little bit of an effect from higher mortgage rates, that prospectively higher mortgage rates that could could pass through. But it has been it has been a historically strong uh, uh, housing market in line with that very uh, strong consumer sector that I described uh, earlier. Uh, in terms of uh, housing's role in driving inflation, uh, what we've seen has been a ratcheting up uh, of uh, owner equivalent rents and the like. And it's uh, higher than it was before the pandemic. I don't really think of it as the marginal contributor to the high inflation. I think that it's that's come more from from uh, the goods sector. Hmm. And I think there's a distinct risk that it starts moving into some of more of the services sector uh, as the economy adjusts over time. But it does mean that kind of the baseline for inflation at the moment is higher half point or whatever than it would have been. But I don't think it's the spiking that we're seeing in the inflation process. Yeah, that durability of uh, of the, the housing component of inflation could be with us for a while and keep the baseline higher. I just yeah. wanted to circle back to to one thing that uh, uh, it's it's a not a first order impact necessarily of the Russia Ukraine uh, conflict, but there's a lot of discussion about how the sanctions regime interacts with the dollar's role as a reserve currency. And I wanted to get your intuitions on this, Jim, and uh, you know get a sense of. You know, where you see the where you see the application of uh, different sanctions, particularly the way in which um, the Russia central bank reserves were treated, uh, you know, the the critics say that this is you know this is eroding uh, the dollar's position as a reserve currency around the world. The Chinese are trying to get the Saudis to buy oil in renminbi uh, today. This is a, a headline, and uh, and there's kind of a drumbeat uh, along the uh, along those lines. The, the flip side is obviously, you know, if you're in the, the dollar payment system, you have to have some sort of rules and, and red lines. Where do you where how do you think about this about this thorny issue? Well, I, I don't know if I have deep thoughts on that other than to say um, I'm not sure who would trust a a Chinese dominated financial system more than an American dollar dominated financial system. If you would, I think good luck to you. But if I could just jump back for a second to the housing issue, mm-hmm. there is a, a, a recognition, at least from my conversation with administration officials, about the housing issue and the housing supply. Long As, as Tony mentioned, the investment issue, that that is a problem. I think you're seeing that uh, that notion spread you know, into sort of you know, wonky left-center policy circles. I know, you know Ezra Klein's had a column a very kind of pro-building housing kind of column. I mean, that's not like a tomorrow uh, solution, but if you're looking forward to a kind of a longer-term uh, kind of inflation-fighting thing, uh, certainly more housing supply uh, would be uh, a part of it. And now to jump jump back to the first question, uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time on CNBC, where I'm still a contributor, a lot of time on Larry Kudlow's show. So I'll still say you got to love King Dollar. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Gary, I mean, I'd like to get your thoughts on the sanctions as well. It's a uh, it's more those are more aggressive than than a lot of people had expected. But obviously, they're uh, the 
the invasion is more brutal than a lot of people expected. So uh, how are you uh, how are you hearing the uh, the various uh, sides on this debate? Yeah. So, you know, as you said, we, we haven't really seen anything quite like this. I mean, obviously, there have been aggressive economic sanctions in the past. You think about, you know, South Africa and apartheid and things like that. But this this specific thing of, of cutting off a central bank and, um, you know, specifically a central bank of, a, of, you know, the 11th largest economy in the world. Um, I think that that is something that I think will have to change the calculus a little bit because now countries know that that's on the table. And I mean, Russia is still, you know, they were, they were sort of not completely integrated into the global economy. I mean, they only joined the WTO in um, 2012 and, Soon after that, they sort of, you know, we're like one foot in, one foot out. Um, and then, you know, we've, you know, we after the Crimea invasion, then that decreased our agricultural relationship with Russia. So, you know, one thing that I'm curious about is, um, you know, not just this question of does this make countries, you know, rethink whether they want to use the dollar, but also, what this says about globalization, because you could see one side of the argument that says, well, you know, this shows that if you're if you're integrated into the global economy, it's easier for you as a country to get screwed. But on, mm. on the other hand, you could also make the argument that, you know, this shows that the more integrated you are to the global economy, the harder it is <laughs> for people uh, to screw you. And, um, you know, maybe maybe this really has been sort of a, a peacekeeping thing. Um, you know, this this whole notion behind the European Union, right, of yeah. preventing preventing war in Europe. So um, I, I think that these are all really fascinating questions. And it, and it it really boggled my mind. I mean, I'm, I'm no like great geopolitical thinker, I can, I can guarantee you. But like it, it, it boggled my mind um, when this all first started happening just in the course of over a few days. It seemed like the way everyone was thinking about the world just completely shifted. And um, so I, I think that on the margins, you probably will see slightly less dollar usage. But the thing that I hear from from most people is basically like, you know, it's one thing to say you want to have an alternative reserve currency, but actually finding one that's as good is is another matter. So yeah, that's I think that's the most important point, Victoria, is that you know, at the end of the day, people, people are not choosing to use the dollar out of altruism, you know, uh, they're doing it because it's, uh, it's in their best interest. And, you know, we have deep, rich, liquid markets um, there, you know, the, 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 uh, it, w- it would actually be great if there were a couple other, um, you know, good reserve currencies. It's really hard to do. You need to have, uh, you know, open financial sector. You need to, right. You need to, uh, you need to allow it to happen. It's nothing the Chinese are, are really interested in doing in, in allowing the, the, the RMB to play that role. It's hard for, you know, the, for the Yuan or for, for the, uh, uh, for for Japan uh, to allow the yen to play that role, uh, we'd like to see more of that. And the euro as well. The euro still has a lot of work on on opening up their financial sector as well and making it as uh, as accommodating for you know for traders. So it'd be great if some of the really good you know economies with good structures would allow that to happen, but they don't seem all that interested in actually doing it. And uh, to Jim's point. The ones who uh, are not all that, you know, great, great countries with great institutions, uh, they can't, they, they really, it doesn't seem like they can really do it. I, f- I feel like Tony wants to give us his, his top three crypto bets here. 
I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm, I won't do that. Yeah. Guys, I think we are, we are right up uh, uh, on the hour. And uh, I just want to tell you how much, how much uh, John and Brendan and I appreciate you, uh, you all joining us, uh, you know, Victoria, Nathan, Jim, uh, just uh, really, really wonderful. It went really quickly uh, for me. I think I have like 20 more questions for, uh, for each of you, but I uh, look forward to seeing you. Hopefully next time we can, we can uh, do this in person. Victoria, we'll look for you for your, uh, your question uh, to the fed chairman uh, tomorrow, right? Tomorrow. Yeah. 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 No, let, yeah. let, let me know. Feel free to email me questions Sounds- that I should be asking. Cause I always try and come with with a list of a few options. So are you <laughs> virtual tomorrow, Victoria, or are you allowed back in the, back in the building? Not quite yet allowed back in the building, but um, hopefully, hopefully soon, because when we're allowed in the building, then we're allowed to do a, a lockup. Yeah. And we have a little bit more time with the documents. So that, that I miss. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for, we know how much, how valuable uh, your time is. Thank you uh, very much to the audience. Also, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can find it on the HPS uh, podcast page and also on our YouTube uh, page when we get it uh, when we get it reposted. Uh, thanks again. Have a great rest of the week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.